Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. We are launching this channel with some in-depth interviews with some great people from the squash world. But we're also trying a little experiment first by doing two versions of each interview. One is the full-length interview that Squash Radio had with each guest, and two is a more produced version that takes some of the highlights from each conversation. Making those cuts is actually pretty challenging since we think it's all great content. But let us know what you think. Should we continue to do both? Send us an email to squashradio at gmail.com. Also, if you have any great stories that involve squash, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for listening. What about this? This call is... Hey there, Squash fans. Well, today we have a great guest for you. Uh, His name is Christopher Gordon, and he's originally from New York City. And he's been at the top of the squash scene here in the United States for the past 15 years. He's done that by achieving a world ranking of number 44. He's represented Team USA almost more than anyone in history with five world team championships, three Pan American games, two world games, two world junior championships, and a handful of Pan Am Federation Cups. Christopher has also been number one in the United States and has won the U.S. National Championship. Beyond his achievements on the court, Chris has also been an amazing ambassador for the sport of squash. He's done exhibitions all over the country. He's also commentated on Squash TV, even emceeing for the U.S. Open. I got to know Christopher in New York City when I first started out my squash career, and we overlapped when I was trying out for Team USA, yet not even coming close to achieving what he had. I also worked with him through the national championships, the U.S. Open, and Team USA when I worked uh, for U.S. Squash. But I hope this conversation helps you get to know him a little bit better like I have over the years. So here's a quick little overview of what Christopher and I sit down and talk about. And uh, some of the insights you'll learn have to do with what actually happens with the professional players and signing up for a tournament. What happens in the last few minutes before a tournament on the PSA Tour closes. We also dive into his support network of what makes him one of the top athletes in the United States, where he credits U.S. Squash Elite Athlete Program, his coaches, his family, but he has sponsors. And some of the ways that he got his sponsors might surprise you. Lastly, we close it out with him representing Team USA, as well as what winning the national championships in 2013 meant to him. So without further ado, here's Christopher Gordon. And so we jump right into it, talking with Chris about what impacted him at a young age to make him focus on squash. You becoming a professional. I mean, uh, I remember you meeting you at a pretty pretty young age. I think you must have been 11 or 12. And uh, uh, you said, I'm going to become a professional squash player. When did you have that so firmly set in your mind that you wanted to pursue something like that? Um, so I was, al- I was always from an extremely young age, I was always fascinated by sport and, and, um, loved, loved professional sports. Um, funnily enough, at at a really young age, like when I was five or six, I was more aware of college sports. So I really had 
had a dream to be a college athlete. Originally, I was a college hockey player because I used to watch a lot of college hockey. And mm-hmm. then um, as I got older, I became more aware that college was a stepping stone to the pros. And that's when I really zeroed in on professional sport being what I wanted to do because it was the highest the highest level you could strive to compete at. Right. And probably a catalyzing moment for me was when I was, I think I was about 12, I went for the first time to Europe to play. And I played in the British Open, under British Junior Open under 13. And I think I lost in the first round and maybe won a round in the plate and then lost in the next round. So it kind of shows just how, how off the mark of the top, top juniors <laughs> in the world I was. But just being there and getting to see some of the top juniors in the world right up to juniors who were who would be turning pro soon i found really inspiring and i love the idea of traveling to compete and things like that and that was a moment where i really said to myself i want to i want to really make this a goal of mine and work as hard as i can to make this a reality yeah well so uh it looks like, uh, and this is on your PSA profile, um, you officially turned professional in 2002. I mean, in 2002, I wouldn't have really considered myself a professional. So I think the first year or two, I was, I was quote unquote on tour. I, yeah. I only played one or two tournaments and it was mostly just an opportunity to get experience. Cause we had a few tournaments at the time here in the States and it was just a chance for me to kind of get my feet wet and see just how how high the level really was and how much work I had to do. Um, I think my my first pro tournament was actually in Oklahoma City. And I think in the first round, I, I think I played an English player called Shahid Khan that actually works in Detroit now. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So the first, the first year I played Oklahoma City, and then the second year I was on tour, I played... Salt Lake City and Oklahoma City back to back, I believe. So those were really my my first experiences on the tour. And how did those go? I I can't remember very well. I think maybe my first match I might have I might have lost in five games, but I'm not a hundred I'm not a hundred percent sure if it was that close or if I'm just looking back with rose colored <laughs> spectacles, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I remember the I remember the experience of being being around the event and being around the players was was a really kind of profound thing for me and seeing how how the players even even after they lost would still go and train twice a day and just being in that environment was something that I really enjoyed and helped motivate me for for the years to come. Yeah. Um, what was one of your most memorable, uh, first wins and one of your most memorable first losses on the pro tour Uh, on the pro tour? Wow. I mean, we're, we're going back. Yeah, this is, this is testing Um, you, man. (laughs) Um, I, I remember I had, I remember in Salt Lake one year, I played Patrick Chifunda and we had a huge match and I, I can't actually remember if I won it or lost it. Um, (laughs) It, it was a five setter, but the main thing, the most important thing for me was that I was competitive at that level and that whether I won or lost, I was in the mix, you know? So it really yeah. gave me, um, it gave me confidence that I could move, move forward, you know? Yeah. And then a really big moment for me as well was 
I, um, when I was 18, I went down and played a $10,000 tournament in Guiana, Brazil. And I managed to make the semifinals. I, in the first round, I beat Dylan Bennett from Holland. And then in the quarterfinals, I beat Fabian Kalaitzis from Greece. And in the semis, I lost to Bradley Ball. And that was a real, a real confidence boost and really made me feel like I belonged amongst those players. And this might be something that I'd be able to do successfully. Next in our conversation, we moved on to the professional squash tour. And we talked about lots of the changes that have been going on that the public might be aware of. Some of it included the introduction of squash TV, the many scoring systems that have changed the way the players play on the tour. But then we switched to some of the unnoticed changes going on on the tour. Take a listen. Yeah, I think maybe one of the unnoticed unnoticed changes that's just a product of how society is now is with social media the players are so much more accessible than they used to be Mm. um especially the top players tend to be very very active on social media because it helps um promote their their own personal brands and it's something that the sponsors like them to do and it's a very easy way to actually reach out and interact with the players and I've even seen instances on Twitter uh, because all the players obviously watch squash TV and amongst themselves weigh in on matches and things. I've even seen instances where players are engaging fans because fans have questions about stuff that's happened or comments and players dive in there and yeah. give their opinion. And that's certainly something that was never happening, you know, 15 years ago when I joined the tour because social media just wasn't wasn't what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how uh, are are you uh, fairly active on the the social media? Uh, I mean, I I probably could be a bit more active. I I do have um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, I tend to I tend to not post too much. I tend to like to sit in the background and lurk and see what everyone else is saying and kind of take it all in. But I, I do on occasion get get involved. Yeah. And actually, funnily enough, going back to your previous question about some changes that that squash fans wouldn't have realized, I just thought of a really, really unique one. So 15 years ago, when I joined the tour, all your entry forms for PSA tournaments would be faxed in. (laughs) And now, obviously, it's done with an online, online portal where we all have our own password and go on and see entry lists and... And, um, you know, and can enter tournaments based on who else has entered. But back in the day, you basically were just putting your name in blindly and hoping you got a, you got a good draw where now the players are very savvy. They're entering tournaments and seeing, um, who else has entered and then pulling out if they don't, don't think their opportunity is as good in one tournament as the other. So that aspect of the game has changed dramatically as well. Oh, so interesting. So the the players, uh, and is that something you guys talk about, or you just you're you more notice what's going on as trends in, in terms of like, hey, uh, this tournament's really strong, so maybe I should skip that one. Um, is that something? Oh, just- that's a, no, it's something. I mean, we probably you know we dedicate hours on hours at tournaments to chatting about this stuff. You know, yeah. Back when I joined the tour, and we were faxing in entries, basically to find out who else was in a tournament, you'd have to call the office and ask one of the secretaries if she could read off a couple entry lists to you. And oh, if wow. you didn't really fancy your chances, then you'd ask her to pull your name out of one of them. <laughs> but 
so it was a bit of it was a bit of a process, right? And it's and you could only service one one person at a time, so you wouldn't really get tons and tons of people calling in, you know. Yeah, well, not to mention um, the time, time differences too. Exactly. Yeah, because it was all based around around an English working day because the office used to be in Cardiff in Wales. Yeah. Um, where, or I should say, a British working day, <laughs> where um, where now with it being on the online portal, we can all see entry lists in real time. And it, it makes a big difference. It's quite funny, actually, basically our tournaments all close at noontime on a predetermined day. And then if you're in the main draw, you have, I believe it's uh, 12, you have 16, no, you have um, 24, you have 28 hours to pull out basically. So you have, it closes at noon on say a Wednesday and then you'd have till um, 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Thursday to pull out. And the, the 10 minutes before that 4 p.m. on the following day, the yeah. amount of movement in the entry lists is incredible. Really? So, yeah. So, and you'll even get players in those last couple of minutes before tournament closes, you'll have guys in group chats on their phone, texting each other, asking what tournaments people are playing and everyone's kind of jockeying and jockeying for position to get the best draws possible. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of like the different, uh, just to, just to give a context of rankings, like what are the different levels of rankings that you think that impacts the most? Um, I mean, obviously the very top players in the world are only going to be playing world series events. So they're pretty they're basically, you know, just putting their name in the top events in the world and leaving it there. But pretty much everyone else, I'd say from 25 or 30 in the world down, it can make a, it can make a huge difference to even, you know, try like, for instance, let's say you're 35 in the world, the difference between playing a 25 K and being the number one seed or maybe being in qualifying for a hundred K is a big difference, you know? Yeah. So absolutely. players are always of any level are always looking for that slight advantage and trying to make the decision that they think will be most beneficial for them. Beyond some of the changes on the professional tour, we moved on to how Christopher makes sure he's fully prepared for the season. He talks about his support system where he credits us squash and their elite athlete program. His coaches, David Pearson and Andre De La Host, of course, his family. But there's another key role and relationship that really helps him. It's his sponsors. Um, this is where we jump in. And then also as well for me, peripherally, it's my sponsors, you know, because yeah. I'm making sure that I'm using equipment that I feel I personally really like and I really want to use. So it means that everything that I'm involved with isn't a chore. It's stuff that I want to be part of and I want to be doing. Who, who are um, some of your sponsors today? So, um, so probably my main, my main sponsor um, is for my rackets, which is Technofiber. I currently use the Carboflex 125S and I love the, uh, you know, I love the racket. I've been using a very some version of this racket or of this shape of racket for the last five years and you know hopefully i play with with this racket or something very similar for the rest of my career because i've found it really works very well for me and i really 
I really like the frame. And as a brand, um, I really like Technofiber. I like the way I like their values. I like the way they've structured themselves. You know, they really pride themselves on being almost like a family, a very close knit group. And I've really enjoyed that and found the support that I get from their staff really, really unique and really special. Yeah. Um, then probably my second sponsor is my clothing sponsor, Soulfire, which is a clothing company that's based here in New York. They actually just opened their flagship store in Brooklyn and Williamsburg. Oh, wow. And I've been with them for the last four years. And I was I was probably one of their I was certainly their first squash player, one of their first couple of athletes. They they started out originally as a tennis brand. Um and now they've kind of morphed from that into a more fitness lifestyle oriented brand. Um but it's a really a really special company for me because first of all it's New York based like myself and the the warehouse where they design all the clothes is actually about a mile a mile or two miles down the road from from my current apartment. So it's been really unique for me to be able to go to the design center every couple of months and see the products they're working on and see their vision and see the artistic talent of the company. And, and it's been a, a real pleasure to be involved with actually. Yeah. So you said, um, you've been involved with them for four years, but h- how long has the company been around? The company has been around about, around about five, five or six years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so they're fair, they're fairly new on the scene, but they're you know they're really really expanding quickly, and and the fact the fact that they've managed to survive in tennis, which is a very competitive market, is you know a real testament to their um, to their product, yeah. the uniqueness of their designs and the quality of their product. Um, yeah, and again, it's it's nice because I you know it's a sm- it's a small company still, so. I know the owner. I know the I know the guy who's responsible for all the designs of the clothing, and it's really exciting for me to get to talk to both of them about sort of their vision for the company and and where they're trying to take it. It's a really unique view that if I was involved with a larger company, I'd never be afforded the opportunity. Yeah. So it's. Um, I mean, it sounds like, and that's only two of your sponsors, but like to you. Uh, it's more important about the relationship as well as the product and the quality, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, you know, it starts with good, good product and good quality that that's going to help me perform on court. But then the relationships I build with a company are really, really important to me because you got to remember, right? Like we're away most of the year competing and stuff. So these, these companies that we interact with, they, the people who work for them almost become friends in a way. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my other sponsors, I, I'm involved with Salming for shoes mm-hmm. and I'm just a big, I'm a big fan of, of the shoe. I, I currently use the race R1 and I've used that, I think for the last three, three years. And I just really, you know, there's, there's not much to say other than I just, I really like how it feels. Yeah. And my last sponsor is a fairly unique one. Um, it's a green tea company called Dumacha mm. and I actually met them on Twitter because I, I tweeted something when I used to commentate with Joey at some of the world series events about 
how I was preparing to go on camera with a cup of cup of green tea and get my, you know, get myself in the right mind space or whatever. And yeah. they picked up on the tweet and and me and Dumach actually exchanged a couple a couple tweets back and forth and <laughs> basically ended ended up in me um receiving receiving some cans of green tea and writing a few testimonials for them. So they've been a really unique and a great supporter of mine for the last couple of years. <laughs> that's great. And is that, I mean, um, that seems like a pretty u- unique way to pick up a sponsor, but is that, how have you found some of the other sponsors to, to, um, to work with? Um, it, well, I mean, Technofiber and Salming, they, they kind of happened organically because they're very involved in squash, you know, so you, you know, so that, that's kind of in the squash world already. So that, that's just works through your connections. You're obviously very aware of the the products because you've seen other players using them and you've gotten to test them at tournaments or whatever. And you might, you know, because you like a product, you maybe reach out to the company to see if something, if you guys might be able to start a relationship. Mm. Um, the, my relationship with Soulfire started, that was kind of unique how that started because I was at the time, four years ago, I didn't have a clothing sponsor and I was buying a lot of Nike clothes just because I kind of liked the look. And I was hoping to get another, hoping to get a clothing sponsor, but they can be harder to come by in the squash world when you're not one of the top players. And I basically was just looking at on tenniswarehouse.com to see what other companies were out there. And I saw Soul, Soul Fire and liked their clothing, and I actually just cold called the company and actually got the owner on the phone. I didn't realize I was speaking <laughs> to the owner when I when I called up, but we sort of um, we hit it off, and I met you know I kind of mentioned you know I, I must have obviously said a few buzzwords that were the right things to get his get his interest a little bit, and he he got me a couple samples of clothing shortly thereafter and we've sort of built up relationships slowly over time you know we started with just a couple couple sets of clothing and it's built up the more the more the brand and I have gotten to know each other yeah i mean uh, i i have seen you play in in some of uh, their clothing and i've seen uh, some of the other tennis players and it really is i mean they're hitting the ball out of the park in terms of design like you said design and and really just how distinct it is um, to create that. Mm-hmm. And I think especially these days, like you, we were talking about earlier with social media and and uh, how those images can really impact audiences. And I think um, they're really kind of hitting that, that, that confluence of like those two things. So um, you really, um, it's impressive what they're doing. Squash professionals are the stars on the tour. And in an effort to promote the sport more, they often get asked to help. Here Gordon explains a boxing versus squash piece that he did for squash TV. Well, the, um, I remember seeing uh, a bit that you did was, um, wasn't there a, a boxing bit that you did? <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, we did a uh, sort of, um, how would you call it? Like a comparison between squash and boxing for squash TV. It was me and Steve Coppinger and they took us down to a boxing gym in Philadelphia and had us put through a session by a professional boxing coach and it was it was quite a funny situation because squash tv billed it to us is basically go down there and you know have a chat with the coach and you know sort of hold your rackets and (laughs) talk about the similarities a bit maybe do a little bit little bit of skipping and maybe hit the heavy bag a couple times because it looked good on camera and that would be about it 
Well, the next thing we know is we've got this boxing coach putting us through like a 20-minute circuit with sledgehammers and battle ropes and all kinds of stuff, and then get it, getting us in the ring for sparring and have his his partner that was named Iron Man hit us with hit us with these plastic sticks that we were supposed to be ducking away from while we were sparring with someone else. So it ended up being it ended up being a pretty intense hour. Especially if you're going in thinking it would just be, yeah, we'll we'll go in and pose a little bit, we'll we'll hit it make it look good and suddenly you're in a full training session. Oh yeah, yeah. We went in there thinking it was just like purely like a made for T V, you know, stand around, smile and hopefully we don't say anything, you know, too too off too off off topic and yeah. instead it basically ended up being cancel canceling everything else we had we were planning to do the rest of the day because we were so tired and needed to go back <laughs> to the hotel and rest oh man and do you think uh what do you think the 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 trainer there thought of, of squash players the uh, do, do you think a uh, good impression i hope so i hope so i mean we we certainly put out a lot of work in that session. <laughs> um, I think he, in all seriousness, I think he was fairly impressed with the cardiovascular capacity we had because we were able to, you know, we were able to keep going through the session, you know, because yeah. it was quite a rigorous session. We were able to, you know, keep going at relatively the same speed as when we started. Um, probably the only, only issues were some of the more specific skill sets to the boxing because we were doing quite a lot on the speed bag and, and the sparring that we were a bit deficient in the technique. And then also as well in, in the upper body strength as well, because a lot of the exercises they do tend to be a little bit more upper body based, where for us, obviously, we're doing a lot more lunging and squatting based exercises. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm sure you did a squash proud that, that day. <laughs> Uh, oh and it was in it was also it was in philadelphia right yeah yep yep it was at the joe hands boxing gym joe hands okay so trying to be a little rocky-esque yep yep absolutely yeah christopher is now a seasoned veteran with team usa having been involved with the national team program since 2002 his best team finish was in 2011 in germany where they finished six but here is Christopher talking about a memorable experience that took place in Mexico. This will be a little bit unusual. I mean, it wasn't actually a team match. It was, it was a doubles match that Julian and I played together at the Pan American Games in Guadalajara. And so even though it wasn't, quote unquote, a team match, it was still representing the U.S. And the reason sure, it yeah. stood out for me, the reason it stood out for me is um, firstly, it was with Julian, and he and I had spent so much time together on on national teams that you know we'd almost we'd almost started to kind of expect, in a way, expect the other to be there, and we'd both become part of the furniture a little bit. <laughs> um, but the thing that was amazing is we we managed to get to the finals, and we were playing Mexico in Mexico. <laughs> In, oh, wow. in, a, in quite a small compact venue that was packed with basically 199% Mexicans and then the 1% was the rest of our teammates. So it was kind <laughs> of us against, us against the rest of the world, you know? So yeah. it was a really, um, it was a very exciting match to be, be a part of. And it was, it was a big deal for Mexico as well because they, they beat us two love in about 90 minutes or something, something ridiculous. And, 
And the next day, the the Mexican boys who'd beaten us um, ended up on the back page of every newspaper in Mexico because I think it was the first gold medal that Mexico won at that Pan American Games. Oh wow! Well, and, and just to give just to give some context, um, 2011 is a Pan American Championships, and um, that's the year before the Olympics. And I mean, these are uh, regional championships with. Um, every nation in that in that region competing i mean these are this is a huge deal i think in the u.s we're so used to seeing those stages uh, whether it's on nbc or or or, you know um, very easily accessible but i mean in these other countries i mean they i remember parades and they they really make a huge deal out of um well well, the thing the thing to realize realize about it is here in the u.s we're we're really spoiled and this is a good thing we're really spoiled for olympic success so we we really focus on having our best athletes at the Olympics and using events like the Pan American games, regional games for either for gaining experience to help bring athletes up to that Olympic level or to qualify them for the Olympics Mm. where in, in South America, this isn't to say they don't have some fantastic Olympic athletes, but they don't quite have the level of success we do in terms of the medal table and the medal count. So winning a Pan American games medal for them is not only a huge deal domestically, but it's also an enormous deal monetarily because very often medals at, a, at the Pan American games are very highly incentivized monetarily by, by national governments and regional governments. Mm. So, you know, so when, when we lost that, that final to to the Mexican boys, one of the reasons it was such a charged match is they had tens of thousands of dollars on the line if they if they won, you know, for for a medal bonus, yeah. Wow. And and obviously the the gold medal bonus was quite substantially higher than the silver medal bonus. So you know the motivation wasn't just to win for you know for their country and for self pride, but there was that monetary motivation as well. Wow. And what were these matches being televised uh, down in uh, in Mexico? Yes, I, I can't remember if that particular. I think that match might have been live. I mean, I mean, obviously, I was on court, so I was a little bit <laughs> oblivious to everything else yeah. going on. Going on, but but I remember it was a really a really heated affair, and I remember um, I remember basically it was on a traditional. Um, traditional glass back court with the fans were about five feet behind the court. So they were quite up on top of you. And, you know, there were flags and there were chants, Mexico chants going. And it was, it was all quite, quite intense, you know? <laughs> I can imagine. And uh, so, you, I mean, you, you picked this as one of the, your more memorable experiences, but which way did the match go? Oh, we lost, we lost to, to love something like, something like 11, 11, nine, 11, eight or something like that. It's a, uh, it's a pretty, so, remarkable, but in, in 90 minutes, though, in 90 minutes, oh, wow. which was a bit, which was a bit much, but you know, we now shift gears from talking about Christopher's team USA performance to diving into one of his crowning achievements of his career, winning the 2013 U S national championships. Um, so, I mean that that's you representing uh, team USA. And now I'm uh, just talking a little bit about, uh, yourself and um, you know you've been able to to win the the junior national championship and and even uh, uh, knock out um, Julian Illingworth's uh, run where where you won in 2013. Talk about 
that and what those moments meant to you? Yeah, I mean, winning winning the Nationals in 2013 was a really big deal for me and was in some ways a huge relief because Julian had had such a such a kind of a stranglehold on the event. I mean, at that point, I think he'd won it eight times, eight consecutive times. It it almost it almost didn't feel realistic to even even hope to win one because he was playing such a high level and was so confident in especially in that particular event. So when um when Gilly beat him in the semi and and I managed to get through to the final, I I really felt there was a huge opportunity to be had and I was really extremely happy with myself that I was able to play as well as I did and take that opportunity and and get a national title to my name because it was something that I was kind of in you know I was trying not to let it worry me but in the back of my mind I was starting to go I've been trying for so many years and it still hasn't happened and is this is this maybe something that's going to get away from me you know yeah so I mean was it um was it pretty surreal when it actually happened yeah I mean it was it was you know it was it was just it was just really it was really unbelievable and it was it was really special for me because it was here in here just outside New York in Connecticut so quite a lot of people that were really close to me were able to come you know um my mom was there R- Richard Chin who was my first squash coach was was there and then my, my fitness coach who so it was, and Tommy's kids, who I actually do a bit of training with in the summers. So it was really special to have have everyone there and kind of be able to go through that moment with everybody. You know, we wrapped up the conversation with a little bit of reflection, talking about what advice he might pass along to his younger self. Um, if you could pass along any advice to yourself, you know, at let's say age twenty or twenty five, but by passing along that advice, it wouldn't change anything of who you are today. It would just maybe make it a little bit easier. What would you be passing along? Would you say start skating earlier or, or what do you think uh, some advice might be that you pass down? Uh, I think, um, I think if I, if I was going to pass on advice, I'd just tell myself to, to relax and enjoy the process and not to force it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that you, that you will get there and that you don't need to, you don't need to, you don't need to stress about it, but you need to enjoy every, every phase phase of the process and then the other thing i probably tell myself is you you don't there's no there's no magic formula it's just it's just hard work and being consistent and just keep putting the hours in and try and keep ramping up the effort levels just little by little and and you'll get there over time it just it's a process and it doesn't happen overnight you know, at this point, I just want to wrap things up and, and thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, what we can do is check in with you uh, after uh, the end of the season and see how, how this went. And uh, we'll continue to check in. But I really appreciate all the time. And um, it's been a pleasure having you. No, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Connor. It's been great to, it's been great to chat with you. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. 
Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun. Mm-hmm.